There we are, but it seems to be starting again. Here we go. Right, well, let's uh, go back to Acts chapter 7 and uh, have a look at that. And let me ask you uh, what might be a trick question. Where do you go to meet God? Now, you all said that's a trick question. We know the trick. We know the answer. You don't go to church to meet with God. And everybody says that, not just in the church, but outside the church. They come up with the same answer, they tell you the same thing. And actually, it seems like this is what Stephen is saying. And he's taking a very long time to say it. You don't have to go to church to worship God. It seems like that's the whole point of his message. And it seems a very long way and a watery way to say it. A man called George Bernard Shaw, a very famous Irish playwright, said... Uh, this man is writing a very tedious speech. He's talking to Jewish leaders, if you like the House of Bishops in their day, and he's telling them what they already know. Why does he want to waste his breath? I want to suggest to you that actually Steve is, Steve is not quite as predictable as that. And he's got something new to teach them, he's got something new to teach us. There are two things I'm going to say under this little talk. One is that God is glorious, that's the main thing that Stephen says. Second thing is that people shrink his glory. Okay, let's start with the first one, that God is glorious. The glorious thing about God is that actually you don't need to work out where he is going to uh, meet you and uh, go there. The glorious thing about God is actually that he comes to us. And the staggering thing about Stephen, the way he gets us across, is he uses history to teach geography. That sounds really weird, doesn't it? But what he really does is he uses the past to tell us about places. So he goes back in the past to uh, Abraham. He's in their history, pretty much at the start of their history. And he says, yes, the history is important, but notice the place, notice the geography. Abraham meets God in verse 2 in Mesopotamia. That is in modern-day Iraq. And God, therefore, meets this man who is a pagan man, and he meets him in a pagan place, and God is there. Nothing holy about the land of Iraq when Abraham is living there, also. Then he goes on to the second person. He says that God was with Jacob in verse 9 in Egypt. Now, Egypt was the worst place that uh, you could think of if you were an Israelite. They had all sorts of bad memories stored up from their time in Egypt. And so, therefore, they had nothing but bad words to say about Egypt. It was the worst place. They wouldn't even mention it. And yet, see how many times... Stephen mentions it, verse 9 onwards. And uh, uh, you see how he mentioned the patriarchs. They, gods, they sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and gave him favor and so on. And Pharaoh, king of Egypt, made him ruler over Egypt. And then came a famine in Egypt. And Egypt, 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 all the time. To show that God is doing his work in the worst place they could think of. And yet God was with his people there. And then in verses 28 to 33, God was with Moses 
in Midian. Now, Moses actually gets loads and loads of verses. If you look from verses 17 to 43, that's a big chunk. And it's mostly to do with Moses. Why does Moses get so much? Because they are accusing Stephen of being anti-Moses. And so he's saying, actually, no, I know a whole lot more about Moses than you do, and I really do wish you would listen to Moses the way I've been listening to Moses. Because in verse 43, uh, uh, in um, uh, verse um, 37, Moses said that someone was going to come after me. I really do wish you got to know Moses too. So he's giving them a big, big uh, view of Moses. But here's the thing. When God met Moses, yeah, he grew up in the palace. He went to the equivalent of Sandhurst. He learned to be a leader of men, but he had to be chased out of the country. He went to live in the land of Midian, and in Midian, God met him in the burning bush. Now, Midian's in Saudi Arabia. So here's the thing. If you think God is going to be locked up in one place like the temple, Stephen says, can I just take you through our history and teach you the geography of where God meets people? He met people in Iraq. He meets people in Egypt. And he meets people in Saudi Arabia. Uh, please don't think that this God is limited into one little place. And when they try and box God into one little place, it goes badly wrong. They try to do that twice, once in their tabernacle and another time in their temple. Let's start with the tabernacle because what happened with this tabernacle is that uh, it was, if you like, a little tent. And it was a tent that moved between Egypt and um, uh, the land that they were going to in Israel. And God was associated with that tent so that it had a pillar of cloud in the daytime, a pillar of fire at night time, so you could tell that God was moving with his people. Yes, he was in a tent, but he was not confined to a tent. He was moving with them. The only trouble is that although that was God's kind provision for his people, uh, Natalie, I wonder if there might be a quieter toy that he could use. Natalie, I wonder if there's a quieter toy he could use. Um, and while the uh, tent was uh, moving, and that was God's gift to them, the reality is that they were not in the mood of receiving God's gifts. So God gave them his word, if you look at, um, is it verse 38? Um, uh, he met them on Mount Sinai and he gave them uh, his words, the very oracles of God, he gave to them in verse 38. But you follow it through. Our fathers refused to obey those words in verse 39. And they said instead, we'd much rather have a God uh, who uh, will be our God instead of this one. And so they made a calf. So at that moment in time, their hearts were all inclined towards idols and idolatry. And so, when they pick up that tent, this is an incredible thing to tell the Jewish people. But it's really where the gloves come off with Stephen and he's really helping them to see what uh, their big mistake was. When they picked up this holy tent that was very sacred to them, he said, actually, you were picking up the tent to the, the tent of Moloch. 
you're picking up the tent not for the living God, but you were picking up this tent for your idols. In other words, you were, had such idolatrous hearts that God wasn't really the God that you were wanting to be with. And uh, it is uh, quite a, a staggering thing to say, except it's not Stephen saying it. It was actually that prophet Amos who said it. So you can't blame David. He said, look, this is exactly what Amos said in chapter 5, verse 25. Their tabernacle was really a part of their idolatry. So it didn't really work with the tabernacle when they wanted to uh, see that as a good uh, meeting place with God. And as for the temple, well, when uh, they had the temple, they realized right from the start, uh, over the page, um, on page 916, that the, he the temple was never going to be big enough for God. The person who made it was a man called Solomon. If you just want to keep your finger in page 916 and quickly flash back to 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 27, that's on page 288. Okay? So, what's happened on page 288? is that Solomon has just built this temple and he gets everybody in for the dedication service. And then what he does is he almost ruins the dedication service with what he prays. Because what Solomon prays in verse 27 of 1 Kings chapter 8 is, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house I have built. So even the person who made the house said, there's no way God's going to be here, living here. And the only thing you can do is pray to us this place and God will be associated with this place to listen to your prayer. And therefore, back to Acts chapter 7 and verse 49, you get this echo of that dedication prayer, only actually he's quoting the prophet Isaiah. I've written the reference for you in the notes. Isaiah chapter 6, 66 verses 1 and 2. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Are you seriously going to think that I'm going to fit into that thing? So you see, this God who meets with people in, in Iraq or Egypt or Saudi Arabia, you're not going to put him into a little matchbox like the tent or a cigarette box like the temple too big for that. This God is glorious. He comes to meet with you. And ultimately, of course, he does that. Yes, you can't beat him in the temple. Ultimately, of course, he comes to do that um, through Jesus. And he comes to meet. Moses said, didn't he, in verse 37, look, uh, God's going to send someone like me. What? Like a great Moses? Actually, turns out to be someone greater because if you look at verse 52 when Stephen refers to Jesus he calls him the coming of the righteous one you never say that of Moses Moses sinned far too much we saw about we read about the murders didn't we that he committed but this is the coming of the righteous one and that's the one that Moses said would uh, take his place so no He's not anti-Moses. But he says, if you want to get the glory of God, then understand that Jesus came to you. 
and uh, see how glorious he is in that way. He's not restricted to a tent or to a, a temple. But our difficulty is we, well, we shrink his glory. You know it is how telescopes work? And we've got this telescope in our heads. What happens with a telescope is we, if you look at a telescope properly, the thing that you're looking at that might be far away suddenly becomes near and big. Yes? If you use a telescope properly. But our trouble is in our heads, we turn the telescope right, so we become big and the thing we're looking at becomes small. And that's how we do it with God. We, we essentially think we're big and ultimately end up thinking he is little. And the way it comes across, and uh, as I was thinking about this and I'm reading about it, uh, someone really put it helpfully like this, you can actually see uh, a simple way that most gets across is just by looking at the word hand. Now it's interesting if you look at the word hand, because you see how uh, God set Moses to be a ruler by the hand of an angel. Can you see that in verse 35? Uh, God sent him as ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel. Okay, this is what God does. He comes and he sends somebody to you by his hand. But the people didn't particularly want God's hand to lead them through Moses. They preferred the work of their own hands. And you see that in verse 41. They uh, made a calf in those days, offered a sacrifice idol, and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. See the contrast? And so therefore the corrective comes in verse 48. No, God does not make... Uh, oops, sorry. Uh, God does not... Um, live in houses made by human hands in uh, verse 48 at the bottom. And in fact in verse 50 of the page it is God's hand that makes everything. The big hand, the little hand. Now at this point we come to the blip theory. Do you spot the blip theory in this? The blip theory is, goes simply like this. Look, people in in the past, yeah, they might have got it wrong once or twice, but that was just a blip. We aren't normally like that. Normally we're okay. That's the blip theory. And what Moses wants to say is actually, no, 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 you are just like our fathers, just as stiff-necked in verse 51. There's no blip uh, uh, theory here. You stiff-necked, uncircumcised heart, you always research, but as your father did so, so do you. And the family likeness comes out in the same anger. So here's the point. If you see God's glory, you grow in love for people. I'll explain that in a minute. But if you don't see God's glory, you shrink God's glory. What you do instead end up with is a heart of anger. That's what they are. They are very, very angry. And shrinking glory leads to shrinking love and Stephen is stoned and it's brutal. I've never been to Jerusalem and you've never been to Jerusalem 
that all of us know there are lots of stones outside Jerusalem. Why? Because we've watched the TV programs, we've seen the news films, we've seen how people write and they throw stones all the time. There can't be any shortage of stones because every single time there's a riot, stones are thrown. There's lots of stones around. Only Stephen, he hasn't got a riot shield. In fact, he may not even have any hands to defend himself because they probably were tied behind his back. That's what they normally did before they're stoned. And whereas in the television programs they'd be throwing them from afar, this time it's close range. You can't miss. And they're coming in thick and fast. It is grim. That is how losing God's glory turns into anger. And anger and murder are the first and last stages of the same thing, which is pride, the stiff-necked refusal to say, actually, I get things wrong. I have shrunk God myself. And so because that refusal is there, the same anger is found. And anger and murder are bookends of the same uh, uh, unchanging, stiff-neck pride that these people have. It results in murder in verse 52. And uh, started uh, 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 the murder of Stephen. Yet, when you see the glory of God, the effect it has on you is your love grows hugely. You see that here. Because while this is going on, Stephen looks up and he sees Jesus. Now again you see the glory of God mentioned in verse 55, right? The glory of God in Mesopotamia, way outside the Holy Land. Now the glory of God in verse 55 uh, with Jesus, also outside the temple incidentally. But it's a lovely touch, isn't it? I mean, here are the people, they are the same people who essentially counsel together to kill Jesus. They are the same Jewish authorities responsible once again in action, with the same angry hearts once again in place, okay? So this is the same lot, and it's a lovely thing, isn't it? That what Jesus, what Stephen does is he looks up, and he sees that there's nothing to be worried about because he sees uh, the fate of their previous victim, which is not to be dead but to be alive and to be standing up to meet the first martyr as he comes home. So what, had, what can they do? Because the last victim is perfectly glorious and right in front of him, standing. So he sees the glory of God and what does it result in? Massive love. Can you see this prayer that Stephen prays in verse 60? And we think it's a standard kind of Christian, Christian prayer. And we kind of say, yeah, 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 fine. We'd expect him to say that. Think about it. Think about what kind of person you become when someone seriously hurts you. Seriously misunderstands you. Seriously represents misrepresents you. When that happens to me, 
let me tell you, I don't normally pray. And if I have to drag myself to pray at that time, then I tell you, I will pray with a very angry heart. If anything, I will pray that God will come and He will put their finger on them like a grape and squash them. That's what I will pray. And let's see how Stephen prays. Please, would you forgive them? God, many times, uh, with Abraham, you met him and you, he was a pagan man getting it wrong in his idols uh, and you uh, brought him to yourself. Um, and there was Jacob in Egypt and he was far away and you were with him. And Moses, well, he didn't want to uh, be useful to you uh, in the land of Midian and yet uh, you changed him around. Please would you do that with these people as well. Now we might be very careful because we don't want to make this a small prayer and say, well what Stephen is really saying is God please forgive them because I don't really mind. He's not uh, saying that. Whether Stephen minds or not doesn't really come into it. God minds. God minds when his servants are killed. And Stephen knows his history. He knows exactly what God has done to the people who killed the prophets before him. Ultimately, he sent down the Babylonians and they did experience <coughs> the grape with the thumb on top. And they were scattered to Babylon. Oh no, uh, Stephen knows exactly what God can do when people start getting their hands on his prophets. And Stephen said, please, don't do that with them. Please, would you give them instead a measure of your forgiveness? Reveal yourself to them. At present, they are blind. And then this lovely little thing of uh, he then fell asleep. It's a staggering thing, isn't it, to say. If you just think about the words, it's rather like he sort of, you know, rolled him in bed, he pulled over the duvet and just fell asleep. But my friends, that is actually what it's like to face death if you're a Christian. Because in the end what happens? Sleep tells you that you will wake up. This horrible, horrendous ending to your life is not the ending to your life. You will sleep and you will wake up. And there is a glorious God who will come to you at that point and show you his glory even though you might be far away from any temple or holy place. In the place of death, God will meet you and take you home. Well, what can we learn from that? I would suggest maybe three groups of people might have different lessons to learn. The first, perhaps, would be someone who's new to Christian things. And maybe that you're someone uh, on our estate, maybe you're someone listening to our, this talk on the website, if I've managed to get it to record, and you might say, what has this got to teach me? My friend, the thing that you need to understand about this glorious God is that actually in different ways, He has already been stretching out His hands to you. 
and in different ways he has already made his glory known to you. Not least in the fact that he made you and has uh, given you everything that you have. And so the whole point is not where you've got to go to find him, but that actually he has made himself available to you. And if therefore you want to respond to him, can I give you one verse to take home? It's verse 3 from uh, chapter 7. Verse 3 says, essentially what Abraham did, God told Abraham to do, was to go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. In other words, my friends, leave everything and follow Jesus. In other words, don't let anything get in the way of you following the Lord Jesus and seeing his glory lead you through the rest of your life. It may be that you have been stiff-necked in the past. It would be good to admit that rather than cover it up and hide. But say to him, Lord, I don't want the proud days to carry on. I want from now on to make a new start, a clean break from where I have been living to now go into the place where you will leave me as you take me home. Let me be like Abraham and to follow the instructions of the true and living God from now on in my life. Number one, if that is you, then that would be a great prayer, a great ambition. But what happens, I guess, imagine this would be much more likely to be with the people in the room. You've grown up in church, you've gone to lots of church services in the past. Here's the word for you tonight. Be very careful of how we can fall into temple-based religion and faith. Now, a lot of us come from a Church of England background, therefore we know that our trap in our history has been that we take these wonderful buildings that we have and we somehow think of them as the house of God and we become very fussy about certain areas of the building that we rope off and not let other people go into and we treat that place almost like a temple. But I want to suggest that even the newer churches easily fall into the, the temple way of thinking by saying the big deal in the Christian week is your service of worship. And worship is what you did in the temple. It's fascinating. The early church, when it started modeling itself, it didn't model itself on the temple. It modeled itself on the synagogue. Worship was what you did in the temple. The synagogue was essentially a teaching shop. You went there to hear the Bible being explained. You look at all the early Christian meetings, and that's what's going on. They're not places of worship. To think of our meeting as a place of worship is actually to start going down the track of seeing God less glorious. <laughs> Because the glory of God is going to be found in his word, in scripture being explained. Rather than the amount of times we sing and the quality of the music in the band. 
And I want to suggest to you that there is a great danger that uh, Christians today, largely the majority in our country of Christians in our day, are falling into a temple way of looking at the Christian life. Rather than a way of actually seeing the glory of God in Scripture and wanting that to be explained more clearly so they can see Him as the great God that He is. The God who comes to us when we are far from Him. But maybe the third uh, lesson to take home is important as well. That we need to understand that our work is to represent the God who meets people and goes out to them to bring them in to his kingdom. And if you really believe in the God who meets people and draws them in in the most unlikely and faraway places, like Iraq and Saudi Arabia and uh, Egypt and Dagon, then that is where you will want to be drawing people in. Now it's very interesting actually how Acts chapter 7 becomes the point at which this new ground is going to be covered. Because what's going to happen now is that from now on, this is the place where they killed Stephen in Jerusalem, but after this, you will see in Acts chapter 8, there's such persecution, they've got to go out of it, go out of Jerusalem, and if you look at Acts chapter 8 verse 4, we'll do more on this next week, and you see that um, uh, in Acts chapter 8 verse 4, those who are scattered because it's getting red hot in Jerusalem, people are being persecuted, and so in Acts chapter 8 verse 4, they are scattered preaching the word. What, what are they doing? They're now going to Samaria, that's where they're going, Acts chapter 8, and then they keep going out and they keep ultimately ending up in Rome. Why? Because this God is once more going out into the world, no longer they're leaving Jerusalem behind, and they're going out into the world because that's where people are going to be encountering God in the gospel. That's how you encounter God. When you hear about him in the gospel and you respond to him, and you are with, and you are immediately drawn into his people. Because it's always been true that God has been where his people are. You see that when they were moving through the wilderness in the tent? And you see that in the New Testament as well. Just one last little reference. Keep one finger in Acts chapter 7. Well, we've nearly finished there, so it doesn't matter if the finger slips. But go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. That's on page 953. Page 953. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 16. I didn't put it down in the notes. You might want to jot it there. But 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 16. Do you not know that you, uh, you is plural, okay, you Christians, in other words, do you not know that you Christians are God's temple? and that God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you, plural, are that temple. And when you get to Peter, you hear him talk about living stones and how God is building his temple with people. 
And if you want to be a temple builder today, you would want to go out and bring people and extend the ten a temple in that way. But it is the work of ultimately um, bringing God to help people to see that God is glorious on the doorsteps. So what I did just now with that little moving thing was to move from where the church is in Hedgeman's Road down to Cartwright Road, which is where we were this afternoon, to show that actually our job is to go out into our area to people who don't know God and help them to have a glimpse of his glory because we share the gospel with them. That is what Christians who believe in the glory of God will want to do. Take the gospel out to places outside the holy place, if you like. But those who are in temple mode, well, they'll get rooted in the building. They'll get stuck in the church. Their little uh, snug uh, uh, focus of attention will be just in worship. Whereas actually, the work of the gospel is where the glory of God is revealed. And where the Christian church from Acts 7 onwards will be active. And where Beckhamtree Church needs to be active as well. Let's pray that God will help us to do that. And I'll stop. You pray for one minute. And then I'll pray one prayer to sum up what we've learnt. But I think we've had a minute, so let me pray as we finish and then take questions after that. Our great God, we do want to thank you that you are the glorious God who move out and you meet people and you reveal yourself to us through the gospel. And there we see that you are such a glorious God that you uh, come close to us, even ultimately in the most impossible place in place of death and you reveal to us your glory in that moment, at that time, in that place. And we do want to ask, Lord, that you would please give us as a church such conviction about the truth that you reveal your glory outside the temple that we are renewed in our desire to see that glory uh, open the eyes of people on our Beckentry estate so they might come to love you and uh, uh, have a greater view of your glory and a greater love even for their enemies the way that Stephen did. So please Father, would you take us and lead us forward as a church in these ways for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen.